0: Welcome to ninety three ninety four, a music podcast with Travis Roy. I hope you're doing good. I'm excited. Finally getting to Nirvana's In Utero. You know, this is one of the biggest albums from the era, so definitely had to do it. It's going to happen at some point. And who did I get to come on the show and do it? My old friend, Matt Fleming. We talk on the episode how we met and all that kind of stuff, but I was thinking about it. And if I had to say the man who I've danced with most in my life, I'd say Matt Fleming. Probably He comes in probably number two dude that I've danced with the most while out and about partying and having fun. Uh, Jess Peak, who was on the show for Morphine and will hopefully come back, he is most definitely the dude I've danced with the most. But Matt Fleming, close second. Yeah, so Nirvana's in utero. What can I say? Well, I brought Matt on to say it. <laughs> Check it out. I'm on
1: my time with everyone. I have very bad posture.
0: Hey, there you are. Are you feeling limber and ready to do this?
1: Oh yeah. Feeling pretty good. Pretty,
0: pretty good. I like this kind of Halloween vibe you got going year round. Like oh I get- yeah.
1: This is just my studio, as it were, that I'm getting kind of uh, put together. The rest, like my living room is, it becomes quite apparent when you're in there that I watch horror movies. <laughs>
0: so- <laughs> That's wonderful. Yeah. I actually do want to talk horror movies with you a little bit later, but let's go ahead and get into the uh, the show itself. What do you say? Yeah, sounds good to me. So I always start the show the same way, I ask my guests to tell the people, how do you and I know one another? Got it. So it's your job, tell the people how you and I know oh, right one another. Oh, right now? Right this moment? <laughs> yeah, yeah, please. <laughs> uh,
1: well, Travis and I met most likely in about 2003, 2004, and I kind of ingratiated myself into your uh, vast network of Heartland, Michigan friends. And then I uh, weasled my way into <laughs> the band uh, Skyline Obscura, and had the pleasure of playing with Kill Drama. Had the pleasure of playing with Rain Is Wet as well.
0: Bands I was in. Yeah.
1: Two of my favorite bands to play with, and I've always, I've always just admired you as both a vocalist specifically and as a lyricist. So oh, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that I definitely miss the most about my 20s is the enjoyment of playing shows with other people that you really just enjoy the company of Mm -hmm. and being able to share that kind of like, hey, this is our mid-20s music. This is us at, (laughs) at our peak, you know?
0: Yeah, it was a small like Ypsilanti scene, more or less, that we were living in and playing in but it was tight-knit and we had a lot of fun maybe too much fun sometimes absolutely as i was saying to you when i saw you recently my main memories of you include a lot of dancing a whole bunch of fucking dancing like till stupid hours of the morning just like a bunch of dudes dancing in a fucking living room together to the like, absolutely I don't know, the stupidest music we could come up with and a lot of steely dan which is great
1: hammered as a nail <laughs> i focusing a lot on creating my own music, Mm. writing poetry, trying to get into some new media of Mm -hmm. creativity, trying to expand some of my mental and um, spiritual horizons via meditation, Zen, and creativity. Very healthy, it's awesome. About the healthiest thing I do.
0: Yeah, you've been on a path and it's been cool to watch even if it's like been from afar, because we don't live in the same town anymore. You are a Chicagoan now, like officially I would say. It's been over a decade. It's been
1: 11 years now that I've lived in Chicago. And on my recent trip back to Michigan, where I had the pleasure of hanging out with you and a couple other friends, when I was actually in Ypsilanti, in my hometown, Mm -hmm. it is very much the Neil Diamond song, I Am I Said. You know, LA's fine, but it ain't home. New York's home, but it ain't mine no more.
0: Yeah, that's the problem with loving where you come from and then going to a new place. Because that's what I experienced in Philly. Like, I loved living in Philly, but -hmm. it never felt quite like home. And I came back, and you know, it's, it's not what it used. It's still great. It's great to be back. But a lot of the people that I connect with now are people that I was friends with, like much, much younger. And as opposed to like a lot of the people that I thought I'd be spending a lot of time with when I came back, mm-hmm, you know. Mm-hmm. But it's it's a beautiful journey all the same. I'll take it.
1: A hundred percent, absolutely. And I have several friends who moved out here from the same general region of Michigan, including a couple of people that are from Heartland yeah. at some point, and. I don't see too many people. I've become a little bit of a homebody, but I think that's what is to be expected after spending a very long time like indulging in the nightlife.
0: Sure.
1: I'm perfectly content sitting on the couch on a Friday night watching some Ratchet movie with my cute little dog snuggled up next to me.
0: That's one of the joys of the 40s. I mean, I literally went to bed before 10 p.m. last night, and it was a Friday night, and I was like, this is bliss.
1: (laughs) I tend to go to bed at about 1 a.m. almost every night, including weekends, but that's also like a side effect, smoking mad weed.
0: Yeah, well, that'll do it. So we're here to talk about the 1993 album, In Utero, From Nirvana. Now, when I started this podcast, I thought this would be one of the first albums that I talked about. And you were like the 10th person, maybe even more, to express interest in it. But everybody that kind of wanted to do it, they're like, yeah, I want to do it, but I want to do this other thing first. So I was like, okay, we'll just keep on bumping it. And I was waiting for someone to be enthusiastically about it, because it's such a great, important album. So I'm really glad that you agreed to talk about it with me. Do you remember how you first got into it?
1: Oh my God, this
0: is truly
1: a transformative album in my life, both as like a growing adolescent, coping with my feelings of preteen angst, and then also as a very young musician, trying to discover the sonic language that fit me very well as Mm -hmm. an individual. In Utero itself was just something that I had been just eagerly anticipating I was probably in about seventh grade or so, I was in middle school, mm-hmm. and my parents and I went to almost like kind of a giant flea market type situation at the Michigan State Fairgrounds. Nice. And my parents bought themselves their first like CD player, new stereo, that whole setup for the living room. Mm-hmm. and. While we were there, there were a lot of vendors, including some selling CDs, and I wanted one thing and one thing only. I wanted Nirvana in utero. Never forget taking it home, and on the liner notes, it has a little note for where to put the bass and the treble dials. The oh. bass is up to about two p.m., while the treble was buried down at like five. So I made that adjustment on my parents' brand new stereo and everything, and then put that CD in and listened to it on the big stereo in the living room and. I just had this sort of epiphany because I had already been obsessed with Nevermind, already been obsessed with Incesticide. I got the tape of Nevermind the same year that I got a new CD player. It was kind of weird. Mm -hmm. And so I went to visit family up north, northern Michigan, and I wound up in the basement playing pool by myself for a few hours listening to Nevermind on repeat. So when In Utero came out, that was the first time as an adolescent that I understood and got to experience the feeling of anticipating a band putting out a new album.
0: I'm pretty sure that MTV Unplugged actually came out like before it I want to say maybe it was November I can't remember exactly. It was right after. It was right after okay so Heart Shaped Box had been the only single and so we kind of heard that but everybody knew the date that it was coming because I remember I actually like bought it on the day it came out which was something i was really about at that age was like convincing my parents to drive me up to the mall you know the day of i remember it was like one of the first days of school and i went up and got it on cassette and me and my friend mike neal who i was really close with like in eighth grade just poured over it you know just listening to it in his room and like analyzing the lyrics and like every guitar strum and like all that shit and just digesting it and to be honest i loved it but like by the time he died less than a year later I had kind of put the album down and had sort of was starting to move into punk and other things and kind of like, oh, you know, I was certainly sad that he died. Very sad. Which is kind of surprising to me now because I listened to it at this age. I'm like, this is very much a third album. This is like a mature, confident band, free to experiment and do what they want. They were able to do that with Bleach and the stuff on Incesticide, and they were able to do that on this. But, you know, Nevermind has a much more like formatted kind of Straightforward feel to it, maybe, or maybe I just kind of superimpose that feeling on it retroactively. I don't know.
1: I mean, Nevermind is very much a rock and roll album. I like to consider it instead of pop punk, which we all understand to be its own thing. Nevermind was a punk pop record, it was a pop mm. record that was punked out by those 80s influences like the Vaseline's and mm. yeah, just the like very, very underground music that Kirk Cobain had been obsessed with. And In Utero was where the band was able to take the experimentalism of that 80s kind of post-punk No Wave. That's really, I think, one of the biggest influences on In Utero is No Wave. Because the band toured extensively with Sonic Youth, mm-hmm. with Melvin's I believe, Yeah. With bands that were already established as sort of the subversive, weird, almost like art rock kind of situations. And in utero, you can hear from front to back has less moments of bubblegum pop, which was something that Kurt Cobain was very much into. It's a much noisier record, not just in the production. Yeah. In half of the album, I've been listening to it pretty frequently in the last week, just prepping up. And one thing that I kind of have forgotten was how challenging a lot of the songs are sonically. Mm. When this came out, I was 12 when it came out. And by the time Kurt Cobain passed away, passed away, killed himself or was murdered. Right. By the time that came up, I had grown so much mentally just considering the subversiveness of in utero and i had the opposite experience where in utero shot me to obsession Mm -hmm. in utero kind of pushed me over the edge as a nirvana super fan becoming a teenager and Mm -hmm. parsing my feelings of being an outsider and everything that's another thing that in utero feels much more like an outsider record yes But it still did gangbusters. It was critically acclaimed. It sold a ton of records. You know, Heart Box was the only sort of official single that got a video and everything. But Rape Me was played on the radio. You would never hear a song like that on the radio today.
0: Yeah, unofficially, right?
1: Yeah, All Apologies became a radio hit. Dumb?
0: Yeah, I remember hearing Dumb on the radio too, even though it wasn't officially a single.
1: Yeah, I think that they were still able to identify the radio-friendly songs, not the radio-friendly unit shifters.
0: <laughs> right. So out of all these songs on this album, could you pick a single favorite?
1: Uh, I would say Friends Far Will Have a Revenge on Seattle. Yes, i Sorry. As a writer, when I go into writing songs, a lot of the stuff that I do is on a day-to-day basis, I've got 50 notes in my phone where I just write single lines that pop into my head. Yeah. And I have been trying since then to come up with a line as good as I miss the comfort in being sad. Mm. Especially as a kid who dealt a lot with bullying, with, Being unpopular, being kind of a young outsider, there is that comfort in melancholy, in angst. And it's so encapsulated, not just in that song, but in the whole record. And it's also, sonically speaking, it is the epitome of their general formula of quiet, loud, quiet, loud, louder, louder. Yeah. When you don't know who Francis Farmer is, as a fucking 12-year-old, this makes you kind of look out and try and figure out who this person is without the internet, without Wikipedia. Yeah, I remember doing that. And discovering that this is like a superstar Mm -hmm. who was institutionalized. And I think that it represented the idea of taking people that you don't understand, people that don't conform, and trying to put them as far away as you can. Mm -hmm. And I think that feeling of alienation, and when you break out of that alienation and suddenly you're a popular person. You know, you have all these millions of people buying your records, in the case of Kurt Cobain. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: When you have all this money and you're doing what you want to do, playing music for a living, the stress is a lot heavier Than being in your bedroom, playing your guitar. Yeah, it's comfortable. Being sad about stuff. Yeah.
0: Right. You know, I think he did have strokes of pure genius, and I'm not alone in that one when it came to his lyric writing. And I think you gave a really good example there. But for me, the best song on the album, and I didn't feel this way growing up necessarily, but coming back to it now, I think Scentless Apprentice is the song that grabs me the most. about the feel of it the music of it especially Grohl's drums that kicking like he kicks the door down in that opener and then you just like bust into this hard like you could kick someone's ass to that song and like almost all of Nirvana's stuff is heavy but like that's and I'm, I'm not someone who's ever kicked someone's ass. I'm not looking for ass-kicking music. But <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, it's still just, it's such like an aggressive kind of like, I mean, you could really just move to that one and it has like such vitality to it and this like aggression to it. Even though a lot of time it kind of slid under my radar growing up because it doesn't have the super kind of catchy single chorus. I mean, go mm-hmm. away, you know, whatever it's I mean, it's but it's like a pretty basic line, but it's not driven by the lyrics in a way that a lot of his other stuff has been for me. It's very driving,
1: very commanding, and it's much more like a visceral sort of.
0: Yeah, medicine. that's a
1: word. The thing about Kurt Cobain as a lyricist is he had his strokes of genius. He had the stuff that was very relatable, but he could be kind of lazy about writing lyrics at times mm-hmm. too. A lot of songs with The more sort of abstract themes and everything were were riffs. He would kind of come up with the sound and the rhythm of what he wanted to say. That, like, you could see even now, like, listening to old live sets where he kind of forgets some of the actual words Mm -hmm. and it's just him kind of howling in rhythm and Mm -hmm. stream of consciousness. Lots and lots of stream of consciousness.
0: That's how he wrote, right? He had, like, a notebook. He just kind of, like, with whatever came to his head, he'd just stream it out.
1: Yep. That's 100% the methodology that I adopted as a kid. Yeah. Writing songs and everything. I just had, and I wish I still had all these notebooks, but I had a Trapper Keeper (laughs) with... Like a actual active notebook, and then the two sides were just filled with loose papers of stuff that I'm writing in the margins. Mm-hmm. I drew like a little triangle in the top left corner of every piece of paper, and you know, I wasn't trying to like emulate him stylistically, except I was, of course, a little bit sure as a young kid. But very much like stream of consciousness and trying to come up with some lines that resonate or just to use the parlance of our times, trying to find <laughs> the right vibe. Yeah. And The Five Setless Apprentice is very much like almost a slow hardcore song Yeah, in a lot of ways.
0: Yeah, you could throw windmills for that one.
1: Absolutely. Slow ones, but still. And one of my sort of um, constant themes as a music enjoyer is that I firmly believe that a great drummer can make a pretty good band into an amazing band. And that's yeah. why when you move from Bleach to Nevermind, you move from Chad Channing, who was just kind of a sloppy drummer, average drummer to Dave Grohl, who legendary, everybody sucks his titties about how good he is. but it's because he had that like hardcore background playing like like heavy music and yeah. knowing how to just really like pound rhythms forward. And he tightened the band up mm-hmm. while the band was still very loose. and son apprentice is one of those milk it. It has that sort of syncopated beat where throughout the verses it's hard to sort of catch the beat,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, until you get to the chorus where it's a little more comprehensible.
0: Yeah, sonically, not lyrically. Dalt state test meat. Uh, these are not genius lyrics in my estimation, but um, it is memorable. Other than that, yeah. <laughs> yeah,
1: and that's yeah, that's the other thing. It's like the abstractions are. Yeah, you know, a lot of people want to read deeply into Kurt Cobain's lyrics. Right. And I think it's a, you know, very much a reflexive, critical lens mm. and people trying to take Kirk Cobain's lyrics and read them very deeply to extrapolate, like, well, were there signs that he was so depressed and so, right. uh, and so much suffering that he had to kill himself? And it's like, well, yeah, there are definitely some lyrics where you feel that Emotional listlessness and the deep, deep sadness. But at the same time, a lot of that shit was just like, "What are some words that sound really weird and fucked up and cool together?" And that "all-state test meat." What the fuck does that mean? No one knows, right? But it's provocative.
0: That's exactly the word I was about to say. He just loved to be provocative. I mean, one of the outtakes from the album was "I hate myself and I want to die," and I don't think that that's an indicator of how he felt despite the no. fact that he killed himself not too long after. I think that literally he just knew it was a shocking thing to say. It was a, supposedly a joke he would make when people asked how he was doing. And maybe, you know, maybe, I'm no I'm psychologist, maybe it was a cry for help and not a subtle one. But yeah. but I think that he was, you know, just just had a really dark sense of humor. When it comes to um, underrated songs for this album, is there one you could choose? very Ape. Yeah. And Tourette's. Okay.
1: So when I was listening to the record yesterday, what I was really trying to get a feel for was the track to track flow and, you know, sort of the the journey, the emotional journey of listening Mm -hmm. to it. And there would be moments where I was like, a song would kick in and I was like, oh, holy shit, I forgot that this is where this song is. And I haven't listened to this song in so long. And the best example of that was when Tourette's comes in Moderate rock. <laughs> got a lot of the same sort of like the vibe of a stay away if you will from nevermind where it's a lot faster it's a lot more punk and at the same time it's got that sonic dissonance that nirvana was really wrapped up in within utero for it to just be very loud driving 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 very fast Mm -hmm. and then as soon as it drops out you get that that just like smooth little riff of all apologies and there you go all of a sudden (laughs) your journey is is wrapping up yeah you know and and very ape is a great rock song with a very compelling chorus out of the sky into the ground out of the ground into the sky yeah you know great line very much like makes me feel what dying really is is going into the dirt and who knows maybe going into the sky
0: Yeah, I didn't even like make that connection. I guess I took it more literally. But now that you mention it, that's probably what he's going for. I've
1: been thinking about this record for 30 years.
0: Right on. <laughs> Clearly, that's why I wanted you on. I appreciate it. That's why I'm glad you chose this. Um, I think for me, coming back to this album, because I I did not listen to it for 30 years, you know, I mean, when I put down Nirvana, And I mentioned this on my 8th episode, I would pretty much just pick up the Unplugged album when I wanted to listen to them. If I felt like listening to Nirvana for decades, that would just pretty much be what I would put on. Since I started doing this podcast, I've been listening to their stuff more regularly and voluntarily, like Incesticide and that kind of stuff and having a lot more appreciation for them. I was glad to return to this album, but the song that stuck out to me that I just kind of blurred past when I was a kid was Radio Friendly Unit Shifter. song speaking of driving yeah like it is so just like thunk, 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 thunk. it's just like yeah you just you're just moving right along i feel like i'm like in this underground tunnel or something and, and it's just like i'm just being pushed by this force behind me you know and it's just like the whole band is just so tight together how do you feel though about the production that's a big controversy with this album is steve albini's production and how they brought scott Litt in to redo heart-shaped box and all apologies what do you think of albini's production
1: I'm a huge Steve Albini fan. Me too. I don't think I'll ever have myself the personal capability of doing everything analog.
0: (laughs) Right. This
1: was still, you know, he's a musician steeped very much in the tradition of capturing the
0: sound. He's like cinema verite, but for audio. Audio verite. (laughs)
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Steve Albini was hesitant about producing the record at first, and he called them R.E.M. with a fuzz box. (laughs) He's very dismissive, very like curmudgeonly. If oh. you follow him online,
0: I mean, his whole life. Yeah, I yeah. do follow him online. He's fun now, but like, there was a long stretch where he was just a fucking dick. Big
1: time asshole.
0: I mean, speaking of being provocative, the dude just went out of his way to be a hardcore dick and just to get a response out of people. He was like an edgelord before there were lords. But <laughs> totally. as far as his style goes here, I love the way that he approached producing this. It's so murky mm-hmm. and like you feel like you're in the studio in a lot of ways. I do agree with Chris Navaselich's point that the bass is a little buried. I wish that that had been more up front when you got a three-piece like this, I mean fatten that shit up. And yeah. Make, make sure I can hear it. That's the only real complaint. Other than that, I think that he did a great job.
1: I agree with you about the bass. That's something that that I've kind of come to appreciate more as an adult. By appreciate I mean like I wish that the bass was a little more prominent because it's very much lost.
0: Little bit. It yeah. needs
1: to be there in a lot of time when Kurt Cobain is literally just hitting strings and everything.
0: <laughs> right. Because there's a lot of noise experimentation on this album, yep. like with like especially with Milk It and some of that stuff and it's like yeah, it could have been more of like a grounding kind of feel. And
1: I think that that's how Steve Albini's production style, with it being very much about capturing the sound in the room, Mm -hmm. the two of them, Kurt Cobain and Steve Albini, didn't have a whole lot of contact before making the record, but they sort of sent stuff back and forth to, like, this is kind of what I feel like I want to hear from Kurt Cobain. And then Mm -hmm. Steve Albini being like, Hey, listen to this record that i made like he passed over rid of me by pj harvey which is awesome to kurt cobain yeah absolutely and it was sort of like this is something that maybe you, you should consider and the funny thing about kurt cobain is that he wanted to do the record with steve albini in part to like reestablish his punk cred, yeah his bona fides yeah but then at the same time for being an outsider, he still wanted the record to sound like a good rock album. He was obsessed with a lot of like shiny classic rock acts like the Bay mm-hmm. City Rollers, you know, Fog Hat, but then he heard it back and wasn't really feeling it. But then after you give it some time and other people sort of listen to it, we were like, no, dude, you've really captured more of an essence than just like capturing the songwriting. And I think that bringing someone in to remaster, to remix the radio hits, yeah. the much more poppy songs and heart Box, all apologies. Especially all apologies. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that that was a, a good choice, but at the same time, my highlights of the record are the noisier songs, the more almost like discomforting, sonically feeling. You know, one of my favorite things, even something I've been pursuing a lot this year, is wanting to put myself into artistically uncomfortable situations whether it's watching really controversial movies, really fucked up movies, or listening to, you know, the most extreme, like, deathcore records, listening to a lot of, like, going back to a lot of no-wave stuff. I've been kind of obsessed with Swans most of this year. And In Utero was the first record that gave me that feeling as a kid. And it was during that time where I was, like, waking up to... All of the potentialities of rock music, alternative music, and underground—not your no effects type punk, not your screeching weasel type punk, but with gutter punk, dirty punk, gutter punk—and like, uh, I, I mean, I just keep coming back to no wave. And there were so many different things that in utero opened me up to. You know, it wasn't long after that that I really got into Stooges, really got into okay. Funhouse and Raw Power. Later down the line. I think that listening to the harder stuff of In Utero opened me up to stuff like Pavement and music that was just very, very much like, we're not the most skilled musicians, but we have so much heart and we have a need to express ourselves aesthetically.
0: Yeah. And I think that kind of gets back to your point of how Dave Grohl really grounded the band and made them become superstars? Because I think that what Kurt and Chris are doing most of the time is like what you're talking about with pavement and stuff, where it's passion over precision. Yep. That's what I gravitate more towards as a musician and as a person who listens to music as well. If I had to prioritize one over the other, I'm going to go with passion. But you have a pretty good marriage of those things here. But is there a song on this album that is the weakest? Can you pinpoint one that doesn't quite hold muster compared to the rest?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And i felt this way. The whole time. And that's dumb. Oh I'm not let down. Back in town. The sun is gone. I don't vibe with dumb. No? Is it the cello? It's not even the cello. And, you know, I want to come back to the Unplugged in New York record, but I think that even being a bit of a sad, angsty preteen and and young teenager when the record came out, I could appreciate it for what it was and for what it is, but considering everything that surrounds it, and it drops right in the middle of the record, everything that surrounds it is so much more abrasive and so much more... You know, like sonically challenging that to have this melancholy ballad right in the middle <laughs> i understood because like you know kirk cobain was also a big fan of these like sad ballads and everything you know give me a leonard cohen afterworld so right. i can sigh eternally line from penny royalty you know i think that like even that penny royalty is a great example of being able to express the same sort of melancholy but in a way that's not as I don't know, like just very basically emotional, slow, quiet, sad song. Yeah. Uh, never mind, you know, you had Lithium, you had Polly as sort of these like quieter songs that also had big, loud bursts within them. I think that I just always thought Dumb was kind of a conservative track.
0: Yeah, I could see that. It's much more staid than a lot of the stuff that they did anywhere, including this album. I guess to me, I've always felt like it felt like experimentation as well, just in a very different way. And towards a way that works for me, like I said, a lot of the stuff I listened to was MTV Unplugged for a long time. So that side of them, that kind of more yacht-rocky, like, sensitive side is the stuff that stuck with me longer as as I matured, but going back lately, I have been having a lot more appreciation for the rougher, screamier, heavier stuff. But for me, the weakest song of this album, I'm kind of sad to say it's not a bad song i mean like i said it's the weakest on the album there's not a bad song on this album but rape me for me doesn't really work because it smells like teen spirit over again and he would acknowledge that i mean he would probably joke about that but it is literally the same fucking chord progression as far as i can tell to walk around singing rakey, rakey, rakey yeah. over and over. But even if you take the subject matter aside, it's just like, okay, this feels like really well-worn territory and it's like, of all the songs you're gonna kind of redo, like the one that, you know what I mean? Like this, Yeah, like, they
1: uh, you know? the, their least favorite, but I'll, I okay. mean, now that you bring that up, I'm kind of on that same wavelength. It's absolutely the same, if not the same exact chord progression, it's the same rhythm. It's the yeah. same, again, sonic vibe, but Because of how much he hated Smells Like Teen Spirit being their huge hit, Mm -hmm. that's my least favorite song on Nevermind, Smells Like Teen Spirit. Understandably. It's almost like a parody
0: Yeah, for him at that point. be intentional.
1: And again, wanting to be provocative.
0: Yeah, I'm going to take this thing that you like, and I'm going to twist it and put like the ugliest thing on top of it. Absolutely. And now you're going to rock it out. Yeah, that's probably very intentional.
1: (laughs) I definitely, you know, I was real quick to buy the box set of all of their singles and B sides. Because mm-hmm. the B sides from In Utero were just so good, so choice. And like you mentioned, I Hate Myself and I Want to Die, which I believe was released on the Beavis and Butthead soundtrack. That's, yeah, another provocative song mm-hmm. that has a little bit more of a unique chord progression. And I think that like putting that <laughs> into the record over raped me. Mm-hmm. Might have been something I would have done as a producer. But, you yeah. know, there's a reason I don't get paid the big bucks to, <laughs> to do that <laughs> stuff.
0: Did you ever get a chance to see Nirvana Live? No. You we were too young, right? I was nice. too young,
1: but I voraciously sought out bootlegs and B-sides, and I wanted to be like a young insider. Mm-hmm. I read the book Come As You Come Are. Come As You Are. Yep. The biography. <laughs> yep. I read that. I wouldn't be surprised if I still have it in a bin somewhere, completely falling apart from how many times I read it
0: <laughs> and could never part ways with it. Yeah. It's in my bedroom. It's right now. Oh, got, that's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> if I can, I
1: want to touch back on MTV Unplugged Live in New York because that felt like me seeing Nirvana live. Yeah. But in that, like, completely singular situation that's where dumb made sense to me that's where you could see them outside of their comfort zone completely Mm -hmm. and they bring in the brothers from meat puppets to play meat puppet songs right They play Lead Belly songs. They just kind of went out there and did whatever they wanted to do. And it was so much different than all the other Unplugged around the same time because you listen to like Pearl Jam Unplugged and it's like, yep, this is an acoustic brunch set. Whereas the Nirvana Unplugged really exposed the pop sensibilities and the craft that was really present in Kurt Cobain's songwriting. Yeah, You can't have in utero without also having that unplugged. The show itself, before they released the album, I taped that from MTV. Mm -hmm. The day it dropped, I had the tape in there, and I still had that tape.
0: Nice. When you said that it's kind of like how you saw them live, it makes me think of the documentary Woodstock and how an entire generation grew up kind of feeling like they were at Woodstock and only when they weren't, but so many people felt connected to it anyways. I think in a lot of ways that performance is to maybe not overreach, but sort of our Woodstock in a way, in terms of it being a live performance that an entire generation practically consumed and internalized. So yeah, I I agree, it's really important.
1: It's a cultural touchstone of alternative rock. For sure. remember the day that Kurt Cobain was found dead yeah. because I was in the car my parents and me and my sister were driving home from the Easter break where we went down to Tennessee to visit my grandparents and it was on the ride up listening to rock radio in Ohio where they dropped the news that Kurt Cobain had been found dead Yeah, and I was like the first time as a kid where I was like "What? what is this holy shit as soon as we got home like, I just ran up to my room and put on MTV, and there was Kurt Loder talking about it. In Utero just set off a chain of events that really put me into, I want to play music, I want to write music, I want to try to make other people feel how yeah. I feel yeah. by just, like, presenting Sonic mess, you know? And I got super into Foo Fighters after that. I still have, sitting right over here, a dollar bill signed by Dave Grohl. That's cool. in a frame with a page that I tore out of Circus magazine. I started reading Cream magazine at that point. Mm-hmm. I became obsessed with every band that was playing Lollapalooza for like the next five years, you know. In Utero, definitely, to this day, I hadn't listened to it in such a long, long time. And coming back to it this week, it was very much like, felt like a homecoming. Mm. It put me into that place of comfort. And instead of being sad, I found comfort in the joy of knowing that this record still slaps.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And it sounds like it really sent you on a trajectory too. That's awesome.
1: It really did. It put me on a course that got me all the way to where I am today. And I'm super grateful for it. And I probably won't listen to it again for a long time, but Mm -hmm. it's okay because all those songs are like simultaneously
0: stuck in my head. Locked in, yeah. So when I saw you recently, you and I connected some over the love of horror movies. I was wearing a uh, Prince of Darkness t-shirt and you were excited about that. And then we started talking about horror movies more as the night went on and we were hanging out and I was like, God damn, I don't remember really talking about horror movies with you very much back in the day. I mean, I'm sure we probably did some, but I feel like um, it was a, a topic we should have exhausted further. So I want to talk horror movies with you some more today because I always end my show with like a different kind of question about the 90s. It's usually like I give like a list of stuff and like, what's your preference? Sounds good to me. But first, I'm going to start by asking you a question. Before I give you the list of movies, I want you to give me a quick list of when you think of the 1990s, who are the horror masters of that time? Who are the directors that come to mind for you?
1: Uh, Wes Craven is the first one that comes to mind. Mm -hmm. For me, it's a two-movie punch of Wes Craven's New Nightmare, Mm -hmm. which breaks down the whole, every movie trope.
0: Meta as fuck. It's meta
1: as fuck, and without it, you wouldn't have had Scream, which scream reinvigorated reinvented or in that same way
0: so Wes Craven who else
1: I mean John Carpenter John, John Carpenter. Carpenter is probably my favorite horror filmmaker one of my same. favorite filmmakers of all time same Prince of Darkness that is one of my quintessential horror movies
0: <laughs> yes me too uh anyone else come to mind I'm trying to think of the 90s right now. All right, well, I put you on the spot. I had time to think about it. I'm going to name some people who I think were the horror masters of the era, and then Charlton Heston's son, who I'm going to throw in there. (laughs) Fraser Heston, because Fraser Heston did Needful Things, uh, which is a, a Stephen King adaptation that came out in 1993. So I'll throw that into the mix as kind of a bonus option. Classic Ed
1: Harris performance.
0: Yep. Max Van Siddow is fucking great in it but actual like as far as the movie makers themselves go and speaking of stephen king 1993 brought us the george romero film the dark Hat. oh with timothy hutton which you know you're in for a good treat when you got romero and king teamed up and i've rewatched that recently and that's such an underrated movie
1: see and that's the other name that really resonates with me through the 90s is stephen king right because that was kind of like peak stephen king adaptation mm-hmm. leaning toward the sort of decline of quality in Stephen King movies after that. (laughs) Yeah,
0: it was the apex, yeah. You mentioned Wes Craven and John Carpenter. Well, Wes Craven, John Carpenter... They both appear in and John Carpenter and Toby Hooper direct segments in the anthology horror film Body Bags. Body Bags. Yep, which came out in 1993. You get a lot of John Carpenter in that one cuz he plays that. I don't know, he's not the crypt keeper. He's like the I mean, he, yeah, he's the he's, mortician guy, whatever the fuck.
1: If you look at John Carpenter today, he looks like the crypt keeper <laughs> after chain-smoking cigarettes for 50 years. Yeah,
0: and refusing to get a haircut.
1: Oh, 100%. No matter how far the hair recedes.
0: Yeah. I'm going to throw another one in the mix, and I've actually never seen this movie, but I do think that Joe Dante is a horror master from the 1990s, and uh, I've never seen Matinee. But I'm going to throw that in the mix as an option for you. Now, Sam Raimi, obviously a big horror guy. Army of Darkness technically came out in 1992, but it wasn't released in the U.S. Uh, it wasn't really available to people until 1993, which has got to be perhaps the most quotable horror movie of all time, or it's certainly in the top five most quotable horror films, I would say.
1: The most memorable screening of that, because that's, yeah, absolutely one of my all-time favorite movies, any genre.
0: Okay, then that might be the one you go with.
1: The Evil Dead series in general is one of my life obsessions. I've got an Evil Dead poster just right behind me. Nice. But the most memorable screening, I went and saw Army of Darkness at the State Theater in Ann Arbor Love it. by myself. (laughs) And it was a modest crowd there. It wasn't as packed as I thought it would
0: be. It was well after it came out, I'm guessing.
1: Yeah, I would say it was probably like 2003 or four. And yeah, it was a room full of people who loved the movie, who were just shouting all the lines back and forth.
0: (laughs) That would have been fun.
1: A bar that i used to work at here in chicago used to host a monthly event called movie Oti, and it's exactly what it sounds like yeah a ton of different movie scenes that you pick from they show the scene on the screen behind you you go up and you recite the scene and the one that i always did was the boom Sick speech of course another underrated 90s horror film bringing up romero is the tom savini directed colorized
0: night of, the dead. Of night of the living fucking dead fucking great yeah it's awesome i think that's 91 i want to say or 90 it's really it's about good.
1: 91 or 92 i think okay it has a solid like 15 years of separation or more like 20 years of separation between the two yeah but, it's know, great Tom's even himself is sort of like yeah I, I went back to this and i'm like i don't know why people didn't you know like this so much but uh I think it's definitely retroactively found its place in the
0: cave it's awesome to go back to evil dead real quick i saw evil dead the musical uh that was wonderful sick they threw blood on us it was great Uh the last movie i'm gonna throw at you is an option that comes from one more master of horror from the era who's still a master of horror today guillermo del toro released chronos in 1993. so out of these films needful things chronos matinee army of darkness body bags or the Dark Half? Which one are you gonna sit down and watch in this scenario, in this rhetorical horror movie watching scenario?
1: The Army of Darkness would be my like sort of static choice as far as like maybe a default. But mm-hmm. much like in Utero, it's something that I've consumed so much, so much. Right. I kind of want to fuck with body bags again. It's so fun. I'm a huge fan of the Creepshow series, both the two yes. Creepshow films and the Shudder series that came out a few years ago. I also I need to go back and rewatch the Dark Half, but. Yeah, body bags. There's there's just something about anthology horror films that always gets my blood pumping.
0: Especially something like this where you got so many cameo appearances. It's uh-huh. just like so fun to just oh there, yeah, there's that you know, there's oh, a yeah. character in there's, there's So many there's cameos in body bags. Yeah, it's ridiculous.
1: Yeah, to this day I think that as much as I love and appreciate whole horror movies with three acts, like give me some quick bites, you know, give me ABCs of death, give me some of the VHS stuff. Anthology horror, it just is a fun way for, especially for directors to be tongue-in-cheek, to have these little Easter eggs and callbacks in them. Yeah. What about you? What do you want to sit down with?
0: If I was going to pick one of these to sit down and watch, I'd watch Matt because it's the only one I've never seen before. So,
1: yeah, I, I got to put that on the list too.
0: My favorite out of the others, you know, I don't know about if it's my favorite out of the others. I know Chronos is probably the best movie out of all these, probably, but I'd probably sit down and watch The Dark Half. After I sit down and watch The Dark Half, even though it hasn't been that long since I watched it, Timothy Hutton is, uh, I think, an underrated actor, and he's underrated in this movie. He gets to be so villainous and creepy. It's, uh, it's fun. I think it's a pretty fun movie.
1: Yeah, I would agree. I also, you know, I just was so obsessed with
0: Bruce Campbell. Yeah.
1: After I discovered all of that, I actually got oh to another person. I got to get a scribble from when I bought his autobiography, of of mm-hmm. Bill. I yeah. had the thing signed in Ann Arbor at the Old Borders.
0: Nice. Michigan's own Bruce Campbell.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Hometown heroes.
0: Awesome, man. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Speaking of hometown heroes, you're my hometown hero, Matt Fleming. Thank you for doing and this.
1: I am <laughs> just so humbled and thankful to have been able to reconnect and to, especially to share something that is, yeah, so close to my heart. When I found out nobody had done in utero before, I was just like, finally, the simulation pops <laughs> in and, and throws me a bone. So, awesome, yeah, man. It's been a blast. I could talk to you for hours and hours about all this good stuff.
0: Thank you, man. Well, I hope you come back on and do it again. I love you. Thank you for doing it. Anytime. This.
1: Absolutely, brother.
0: It's me and Matt talking about In Utero. Thank you for listening. Always appreciated. Being a podcaster is kind of funny sometimes because it's kind of like a distasteful business a little bit. I saw an article recently where Taylor Swift is dating this Travis Kels fellow, Kelsey. I don't know who he is. I'm sure he's very famous. At any rate. Like, uh, the article was like, podcasting bros are invading everywhere. And I'm like, yeah, I guess we do kind of suck a little bit. So I do appreciate my friends being cajoled into and like reined into doing this with me, for me. Uh, And I appreciate anyone who listens. Of course, whether you're a friend in my real life or not, you're a friend for listening. I do appreciate it. Um, I don't mean to be so like uh, down on myself here as I'm saying this out loud. I'm like, oh, am I going to cut this all out when I'm editing this? I don't know, maybe. Uh, I do love podcasting. I love the connections I get to make with people that I haven't talked to in a while, such as Matt Fleming, who had a lot to say about the album In Utero and the impact it had on his life. It was a channel changer. It was a catalyst for him, and it's really great getting to kind of relive that feeling with him. Uh, If you want to come on the show, you're very welcome to come on the show, dear listener. Uh, All you have to do is email me at 9394podcast at gmail.com. You can talk about virtually any album from 93 or 94 that you want. In this episode, we brought up PJ Harvey's seminal 1993 album, Rid of Me. would be a great album to talk about on this show. I need someone to come on and talk PJ Harvey with me. Is it you? Or maybe you want to talk about some other album? Let me know. Um, yeah, okay. So we'll stop right there. You have yourself a good. ninety four, a music podcast with Travis Roy, is a labor of love. It is not and never will be monetized. Please don't sue.